You can open in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're going to finish chapter 1 this morning. While you're turning there, I wanted to read a separate verse. Amos chapter 3, verse 8 says, The lion roars, who does not fear? The Lord speaks, who can but prophesy? The idea is that when a lion roars, it roars with such authority that the natural inclination and only response is fear. And then he goes on to say, so when the Lord speaks, who can but prophesy? Oh, Amos is a prophet. When he hears the word of the Lord, he's going to turn around and he's going to say the word of the Lord. And so you have this voice of the Lord that actually came to Jonah. That's what we looked at last week. The word, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Jonah hears the word of the Lord, but he doesn't do Amos 3.8. Right? When Amos says, who can but prophesy, Jonah sort of peeks around the corner and says, I guess that's, that's me. Right? That sort of highlights for us the shock of a prophet of God receiving the message of God and fleeing from the presence of God. And that's what we looked at last week, Jonah's disobedience. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This is the same son of Amittai, same Jonah in 2 Kings, who's called the servant of the Lord, who successfully prophesied on behalf of the Lord. And so the message comes, and he runs in the opposite direction. And we saw that the result of Jonah's flight was was that he was put on a a dangerous path. Remember in the text, this this idea of this repetition of the word down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down onto the ship. He goes down into the heart of the ship. In chapter 2, he's sinking down, 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 until he's essentially barred in at the gates of the grave, at the gates of Sheol. And so we said to run from obedience to God's word is to run from the it's to run towards the grave, right? And it's to run away from the one who, who is the fullness of joy, right? In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to run from him is to run from the joy experienced in living for the glory of God, of knowing him, of loving him, of serving him. And that's the purpose for which. All of us are created, and to run contrary to f- for the purpose for which you were created is to run towards destruction. And that's what we looked at last week, that God is actually being kind to Jonah and not letting him continue to run. So what does God do with Jonah's flight? Well, that's what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 1. Mercifully, God intervenes. He intervenes by pursuing, and he intervenes by bringing him back. Okay, so as we look at the rest of chapter 1, we sort of focused on 1 through 3 last week. We'll, we'll focus on chapters, or verses 4 through 17 this week. I would encourage you to, to have a Bible in front of you. I think it will help you. As I began to study chapter 1, I began to realize that I think there's sort of three themes that keep popping off the page, but they're kind of interspersed throughout, throughout the text. So instead of saying, here in verse 2, we get two of these three themes, and here in verse 5, we get one of the three, and here in verse 6, we get all three, I I don't want to do that, all right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to overview the chapter, tell the narrative, 
And then I want to show from the text how these themes keep coming together and then what they mean for us. So that's what I want to do. So, so don't get nervous if we're 20 minutes in and I say, now point number one. All right? That's part of the plan. Okay? We ended last week. Jonah's on the run. There's this torrential storm. The sailors on deck engage in life-saving measures, right? They start throwing the cargo overboard there in verse 4, trying to lighten the ship. They do something that they think will help them, which they find out will not help them. They begin to cry out to their false gods, right? And meanwhile, Jonah has gone down into the belly of the ship, and he is asleep. He's not doing either one of the things that the sailors are doing. He's not helping lighten the load, but also, more importantly, and something that kind of is highlighted for us, he's not calling out to the God that can actually help, right? He's not praying. He's not calling out, okay? So, so, so they go down, and they wake him up, and, they, you know, they, this is a polytheistic ship, right? They, they don't care who's God, what God, just cry out to any God, okay? So Jonah's asleep, and they're like, Maybe your God can do something. Why aren't you crying out? Why aren't you helping? And so, you know, they kind of shake him up. They, they confront him with that. And, and, and they, they do something to try to determine who, who's at fault here, right? Why has a storm come upon us? And so they cast these lots to try to determine who is responsible. Now, a couple things. Not every storm, right, is the direct result of someone's sin. That's not the way we read Jonah. We've seen in Luke that people were like had terrible suffering or were actually killed, and, and the disciples assume, like, oh, what'd they do wrong to deserve that? And Jesus says, No, they're not any worse than, than anyone else. So not every storm is the direct result of someone's sin. But but this one is, right? And some some are. So they cast lots to try to figure out who's at fault here. And, you know, we don't know a lot about these lots. A little, it's a little bit mysterious. You know, was it sort of like rolling dice? Was it a, sto- a flat stone that's painted one color on one side, one color on the other, and, and it's sort of like heads or tails? You know, you flip it, show us red if it's Jonah, show us blue if it's this guy. You know, we don't really know the nature of these lots, but we do know that the Lord controlled the outcome of this process and would help reveal at times in the Old Testament what would reveal His will and guide His people in what they should do. Now, let's just be clear. Nowhere are Christians called to do this, right? We're not flipping coins. We're not casting lots. In fact, I think it's a little bit of a mercy that we don't know much about these lots or else we'd probably try to do it. Interestingly, the last occurrence, do you know, do you know when the last time lots are cast in the Bible? Acts 1. When they're going to replace the disciple, right? They're going to replace Judas. They cast lots. What happens in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit comes. And, and there's no more casting lots. Because the Holy Spirit is coming. Now he guides his people into all truth, inspired the apostles and those close to the apostles to record the word of God. We have the guidance we need in God's word. We don't cast lots. 
But these sailors, they, they were in an old era. They cast lots, and God used them to reveal that Jonah is the culprit. Now, we know, we know that as readers, right? We've, we know because we have verses 1 through 3 that Jonah has, is, is going to win, win the battle or win the lottery here. But, um, so when, when Jonah, quote-unquote, wins, they have all of these questions for him, right? Look there in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So first they want to make sure they're right, right? The lot said it's you, Jonah, but let's, let's interview you and ask you if that's true. What, what, who is responsible for this calamity that has come upon us? And then they have like this quick mini trial, you know, it's kind of, Funny to me, like the ship's threatening to break apart. Remember that um, for verse 3 and 4? Like the ship is threatening to break apart, and they're like putting Jonah on trial real fast with all these questions. Really, they're asking, what is your business? When they, that what is your occupation in the ESV? It's probably more like, what are you doing here? Why are you on this ship going to Tarshish? What, what country are you from? Where, what people are you of? And what we have recorded for us is not Jonah's like bullet-pointed answers, right? We don't get that much information here, but he does tell us, or he does tell them that he is an Israelite. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, he says, who consequently created the sea and the dry land, right? And this, again, this just sort of heightens the audacity of Jonah's actions. He's confessing with his mouth, actually claiming to worship the one who created all this, but also I'm trying to use the thing that he created in order to flee from him. And the sailors, they see more clearly than even Jonah. You can look there in the middle of verse 10 when they say, what is this that you have done? They can't believe that anyone who claims to know the Creator would defy Him in such, such a way, so brazenly. And so they, they question Him. What is this that, that, that you have done? Fleeing from the one who created the sea and the dry land. So there in verse 11 they ask, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us. Right, what do we have to do to you? If, if you're the culprit, the lot fell on you, you're all but admitting it, it, it's you, so what do we do to you to make the storm stop? And, and, and the text tells us the storm is getting worse and worse. It's obvious to the sailors that this is not just any old storm that happened to rise up on the sea, but this is a storm that's specifically designed to stop this prophet of Yahweh from fleeing his presence. So they ask, what do we do? What do we do? They're, they're in a, actually a pretty difficult spot, right? You, you don't want to kill the prophet of the God who sent the storm to stop the prophet from running away. So they're in this weird spot where, where they don't know what to do. And actually, Jonah's response is, you should kill me. 
right? That's, what he's, that's actually what he's asking for when he says, just throw me overboard. Throw me into the sea and the sea will stop raging. Still, Jonah persists. Right? If you're reading this story for the first time, you might expect Jonah at this point to, to recognize his folly, recognize his disobedience, confess his sin, turn back to the Lord, devote himself to obeying the word of the Lord, and that would have stopped the raging storm. But for Jonah, death, right, right, right now where Jonah's at, death is preferable to obedience. And you can go home this afternoon and, and read chapter 4 and see Jonah's attitude there if you think, man, that's a little dramatic. Kyle, are you sure that's, I think, I think that's what he's saying. It's not the first time Jonah will wish to die instead of be satisfied in God. So he says, I would rather die. Right? And this, is, this, this fits with what God had taught Israel under the old covenant. He had promised Israel life and blessing for obedience, curses and death for disobedience. Right? And what's Jonah doing? He's persisting in his disobedience, and he's saying, just give me, just give me death. Toss me over the edge of, of the boat. Toss me overboard. But these guys, again, they're in, a, they're in a difficult spot, these sailors, right? They know that's a death sentence. Look at verse 14. They know this is a problem. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They understand that for Jonah, this, this is a death sentence. The state, they understand that to throw him overboard is to cast him to his death. And they don't really want to do that. Right? They don't know Yahweh well. They're just learning about Yahweh. Right? They don't want to throw the prophet overboard and, and risk what could happen. So in, in the verse preceding the one we just read, they, they try to row really hard. Right? Maybe we could just get him back to land. And we'll just row as hard as we can, and that way we don't have to kill him and, and then figure out what happens after that. They don't want to do that. But this, this, this effort, it's, it's all in vain. Right, the, the storm grows worse and worse and worse. There's no way they're going to row their way out of this. And so they get to the end of their rope. They throw Jonah overboard. Right? In, a, in a wild turn of events, right? this isn't forcing Jonah to walk the plank like you might see in a pirate movie. It's, it's Jonah requesting to be thrown overboard. He's telling him to do it. And, and these sailors who... Before today, just worship lots of different gods and cried out to any different god and probably thought they had a personal little god that they could carry around as an idol. They're the ones trying not to kill Jonah. They're trying everything they can do, but in a last-ditch effort, they end up throwing him overboard. And, and, and you know, Jonah was right. Jonah was right. When he gets thrown over, the raging sea Stops. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And those who were previously calling out to any old God, those who were previously uh, calling out to false gods, what do they do there in verse 16? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made 
vows. That's the sort of response you would expect from, from Jonah. You might expect Jonah to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. In fact, he'll, he'll talk about that in chapter 2 when he gets rescued. Right? Psalm 116, 17 says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call to the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. That's what you would expect from a faithful Israelite, not from these pagan sailors. You got the prophet overboard, you got these pagan sailors offering sacrifice to Yahweh, calling on his name and making vows to him. You know, I wonder. And this is just speculation, right? This is not the authority of, of the Word of God here. But I, I wonder if the sailors knew anything about what happened to Jonah after they threw him over. I, th- I think probably for all they knew, he's, he's dead. right? He's sinking to the depths of, of the ocean, a great fish there in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. and Three nights. Okay, so verse 17 there is sort of a, a transitional verse. It kind of ends chapter one, but it also kind of opens chapter two. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but we'll save a lot of it for next week, specifically the three days, three nights, the, the sign of Jonah in, in the resurrection of Christ. We're gonna save that. What I want to do is I want to look at these three. Themes that just keep popping off the page in in different places and in different ways in chapter 1. And I'll I'll just give them to you up front, and then we'll talk through them, and then we'll try to tie them all together at the end. Here's what I think the three themes are. God's sovereignty, God's mercy, and the fear of the Lord. Okay, God's sovereignty, God's mercy, and the fear of the Lord. So as we sort of walk through these three points that are, that are popping off, off the page at us, our three points will sort of form our, our main idea, so to speak. Um, so the first point this morning focuses on God's sovereignty. I told you it would be a little while. The Lord exercises His sovereign authority. The Lord exercises His sovereign authority. Look there in verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So we see the Lord's uh, control, sovereign power, even in minute details, like casting lots there in verse 7. In fact, Proverbs 16.33, you may be familiar with this text. It says, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast. Who's controlling the outcome? Is God so distant that there's a stone on this ship that's flipped up like this, potentially, I'm I'm guessing what lots, flipped up like this, and God could care less about that boat. God could care less. No, it is the Lord. The lot is cast, but the Lord determines its outcome. Whatever they were, Right? Whatever these lots were, when they were thrown, the Lord caused them. He caused them to land in a particular way. God is wielding in Genesis 1 His limitless power to bring about His desired outcome. 
So when we, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about the fact that he carries out his desired will and plan. Okay, you might hear the word omnipotence, right? We did an attributes of God thing last summer. Maybe you were there. We, we, we sort of split up omnipotence and sovereignty. Why would we do that? Well, omnipotence is that God possesses all power. He can do whatever he wants, whatever he pleases. Sovereignty, the doctrine of sovereignty, is that he does. He exercises that power to bring about his will. So we don't have a a, a God in in the Bible, certainly in Jonah chapter 1, that's detached from his creation as if he just kind of created everything, gave it a good spin, and backed away. Wherever fate would take this creation of mine, we'll just have to see how it goes. Instead, over and over and over in Scripture, we find that God is carrying out His will for His purposes through the exercise of His divine sovereignty. In Psalm 115, they're they're sort of laughing at Israel because they don't have a visible God. They don't have an idol that they worship. I say, where is your God? And Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. And He has the right to exercise this authority because Jonah's right. He is the creator of the sea, of the dry land, the creator of the entire universe. Look in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to Him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He's the maker of the sea and the dry land. Do those, those words ring familiar to you? If, you? if you started the year in your Bible reading in Genesis chapter 1, you might, you might remember it, right? Genesis chapter 1. The, the, the seas go to where God told them to go, and the dry land rises up exactly where God wanted the dry land to rise up in its determined place, the seas in its appointed places. God says it can't go any further. And even the pagan sailors here, even those polytheistic idol worshipers, they understand the implication of Jonah's words. If you, if you worship the God that created all this, then he's sovereign over this. He is in control of His creation. We see this. Actually, you'll see this theme happen more than just in chapter 1, that God's sovereign control over creation. We saw it in verse 4 when He, when he hurled the storm. Right As we might throw a rock into a pond, God can hurl this mighty tempest upon the sea and control it like we might control the volume on our radio. It, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that a little bit stronger. I'm going to make it a little bit stronger. It's, it's that easy. It's nothing. The very sea that he commanded in Genesis 1 still obeys his voice. You see it in verse 15. When, in the, when the storm ceases... It's not a coincidence when Jonah hits the water. The storm ceases raging. Right? The sailors, they they correctly understand this to be an act of God, and so they respond to him in worship. 
We also see God's sovereignty over creation and the fact that he appoints the fish in verse 17. I love that language. The Lord appointed a great fish. He had the fish do what he wanted it to do. You know, for those who find God's miraculous intervention and involvement in this world to be something they don't believe, they find Jonah chapter 1 really hard to swallow, pun intended. People have proposed all kinds of reasons why you should believe it, why you shouldn't believe it. You know, people have tried to point to historical reality. Well, there's this guy one time, he got swallowed by a fish, and, and he survived. You know, some of those are like maybe less reliable than others. I don't, I don't know. Others try to completely discount it and say, you know, Jonah had a really hard time traveling on this boat. So what he did is he got a hotel room in a hotel called The Fish, Crazy what people come up with, in my mind, try to explain away Scripture. He slept off the ordeal, ordeal and at the fish for three days and three nights. But it's not, it's not all that hard, right? We don't have to jump through these hoops. We, we, we should understand this as the miraculous intervention of the sovereign Creator. The one who can appoint a fish to do whatever He wants. I'm not sure who said this, but somebody said, if you, if you give me Genesis 1-1, I would have even believed it if Jonah had swallowed the whale. Right? It's, it's God can act miraculously in His creation according to His will to bring about His good purpose. And what's interesting, we, you know, we talked last week about how this has become such a like pop culture, you know, they want to... Focus on the fish. Bruce Springsteen sings about the fish. Iron Man talks about the fish. Pinocchio talks about the fish, right? But the author in, in Jonah, maybe it's Jonah himself, doesn't really talk about the fish that much. The fish is only mentioned a couple of times the entire book, when he swallows and when he spits Jonah out. The focus is not on the fish. The focus is on the sovereignty of God over his creation. He appointed the fish. He hurled the storm, he stopped the storm, because he is the Lord of all creation. So that's the first theme that keeps coming off off the page. God is exercising his sovereignty. In the words of of the sailors, for it pleased you, or, or for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Right? He's done this. But what's God up to? Right? What's he doing in the exercise of his sovereign power? So he said, God is, demonst- is exercising his sovereign mercy. Point number two this morning, to demonstrate his mercy. To demonstrate his mercy. We were talking through mercy in Bible hour not too long ago as the compassionate action of God toward those who are in trouble. The compassionate action of God toward those who are in trouble. Sometimes it's a faithful psalm writer who's asking God for mercy to spare him from his enemies. Most often, it's somebody recognizing their own sinfulness, calling out to God to blot out their transgression and God having mercy on them. So how in the text is God exercising his sovereign authority to to demonstrate mercy? It may not seem like it, but we've sort of alluded to this, but the hurling of the storm 
is actually God's means to stop Jonah in his tracks. That's mercy. Right? We, we talked about last week, Jonah's disobedience, putting him on the path to Sheol. He's descending down, 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 thrown into the depths of the sea, down to the grave. And if that's true, and it's true even if you don't want to see it in Jonah 1, it's true according to Scripture. Sin destroys, sin tears down. If this is true, then the worst thing God could have done would be allow Jonah to just keep going. To persist in his disobedience to the clear word of God. But he sends this storm to redirect Jonah, to keep him from running, to turn him, to bring him to repentance. God is pursuing his prophet and he uses a storm to do it. Now again, we want to be careful not to read the Bible too simplistically. We mentioned this earlier, but it doesn't mean that every trial, every storm of life, every bit of suffering is is God's severe mercy, right? We're going to call this severe mercy because it's a storm, but it's it's a storm designed to help Jonah. Not every bit of suffering is God's severe mercy or his, his hand of discipline. We can trust this, that God doesn't waste any suffering. He doesn't waste it. For those who know Christ, every bit of suffering, whether it's discipline or whether it's just the consequence of living in a sin-cursed world, God is using all of it to conform his people to the image of Christ to make them like Jesus so that we might glorify him. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't assume either of these two realities. Don't just jump to these two quickly. Don't assume that suffering automatically means that God is displeased with your life. And at the same token, do not assume that ease and peace and prosperity and money in the bank account, and health. Don't assume that that means God is pleased with your life. In fact, Jonah's been in both of these situations since he decided to disobey the Lord. He hears the word of the Lord. He runs from the Lord. right? And by all accounts, the first, I don't know how long it would have taken him to get down to Joppa, but those first couple days seem to have gone pretty well for Jonah. He makes it to the port, happens to find a ship that that he can hire to take him where he wants to go. You can Google flight this thing, you know, like this is, Jonah's thinking potentially like, man, maybe my my path seems smooth here. My path seems easy. Maybe God is blessing me in this endeavor. Well, we know he's not, right, because he's running from the voice of the Lord. The storm comes, things aren't going so well for Jonah. In this case, it's true that the storm is related to his running. But what you have in the book of Jonah is a man who has clearly transgressed the word of the Lord. You don't have somebody who's trying to interpret his circumstances to figure out whether he's transgressed the word of the Lord. Okay, that's that's what I'm driving at. Here, here, here just if... That lost you, it's okay. Hear this. Don't try to read your circumstances. Read the Bible. 
Okay? Don't try to read your circumstances. Read your Bible. Don't try to interpret what's going on around you to try to figure out what God thinks of you. Instead, go to Scripture. Go to the Word of God. Try to interpret His Word. God is sovereign even over your life. And your, your goal, for those who have turned and trusted in Christ, your goal is not to try to read the tea leaves. It's not to try to figure out or catch some sign from God. Oh, I saw a billboard that said Florida on it. Maybe God wants me to go to Florida. It's not that. We don't have to try to interpret our world because we have the Word of God. And we are called, this is the will of God, Paul says, your sanctification. We have the will of God given to us in the Bible. Think about when I graduated undergrad. I could have moved to Colorado. I could have stayed in Missouri. Right? I'm so glad that I had been taught by some faithful men that, that it's not my job to sort of like throw a map up in the air and see which one it lands on. Right? They said, hey, can you please God in Missouri? Yeah. Can you please God in Colorado? Yeah. Then choose one. Right? Because my job isn't to interpret my circumstance. My job is to interpret the Bible. Okay. God um, is merciful in the storm, right? Because he's stopping Jonah. God is merciful in that he actually confronts Jonah with the words and actions of the sailors, right? So those first three verses we looked at last week really focused on on Jonah. Um, Actually, most of the rest of chapter one uh, focuses more on the response of the sailors, and what, what the author is doing is the actions of the sailors are contrasted with the actions of Jonah to highlight the craziness of Jonah's disobedience and stubborn rebellion against God. So we saw earlier that the sailors actually cried out to the Lord, when, or not to the Lord yet, but they cried out at least when they were in trouble. Wrong gods. But they knew the storm was beyond them. But the one who serves the one true living God, the one who should have been praying, the one who should have called out, He does nothing. The words of the captain, when he comes down, there in verse 6, says, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain comes down and he, he, he tells Jonah to do something. And the words of this captain ironically echo the words of Jonah's initial call, right? The the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go, call out against Nineveh, right? And so what does the captain say when he comes down? He says, Get up and call out, right? This reminds us of the call that Jonah is running from. He was to get up and call out against Nineveh. You know, I like the way one commentator said, he said, Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare when he's sleeping on the ship and he hears, arise, call out. (laughs) He wakes from his slumber and realizes that God is ironically using the very words of this sailor who doesn't yet know Yahweh to, to prod Jonah towards obedience. I wonder if this is something of what David had in mind when he said, my sin is ever before me. 
And everything just reminds me of my sin when I'm living in unrepentant sin. It's, it's right before my face. Even the words of this pagan sailor are right in the face of Jonah, reminding him of his disobedience and disregard for God's Word. These sailors, they seek divine revelation through the casting of lots. While Jonah has received divine revelation and ignored what he's been given. And lastly, you know, these sailors, they recognize the Lord. They recognize Him as the one who is sovereign, creator, and worthy of worship. So you see God exercising His sovereign authority in order to demonstrate mercy, not only to Jonah, not only in his pursuit of his prophet, but we see in the midst of all this that God is being merciful to the sailors. He not only wants Jonah to see his own folly and to turn and repent, but he is merciful to the sailors and that he, he reveals himself to them. He teaches them about himself to the extent that they're, they're making sacrifices to the Lord. They're calling out to his name. They're making vows and promises of how they're going to serve him and offer sacrifices in the future. He display, his display of sovereign power is the means by which these sailors actually mercifully come to understand Yahweh, the Lord, the Creator. But perhaps the clearest example of the mercy of the Lord in our, in our chapter is the Lord appointing the fish. This is the intervention of God. This is the rescue plan of God where Jonah is rescued from death. We'll see that more clearly next week. Remember that the sailors understood that to throw Jonah overboard is to kill him. He's done. There's nothing more that can be done for Jonah. And sometimes we, we, we read the story of Jonah and we think that this fish is, is an example of punishment. You want to run from the Lord, you'll get swallowed by a fish. Right? And certainly it couldn't have been pleasant in there, but the fish actually pictures the amazing rescue and mercy of God towards Jonah. It is his compassionate intervention through his sovereign power to deliver Jonah from the grave, from Sheol, from death. Jonah deserved death. Right? That's what the old covenant was blessed, curses and death for disobedience. Jonah deserved death, but God was kind to him and he saved him from the consequences of his sin. The type of mercy in Jonah is the type of mercy that reaches to the depths of the sea and raises Jonah to new life as he's about to perish. Not owing to anything Jonah has done. Right? Not owing to anything Jonah has done. But because of the mercy of God, he does not bear the full and final consequences for his disregard for God's word. So if we are looking for a hero in chapter 1, it's Jonah has certainly disqualified himself. Right? The sailors, they, they, they seem to be more sensitive to the Lord's work, but ultimately they can't do what Jonah needs. Right? Ultimately, God is the hero of chapter 1. He is shown to be the sovereign and merciful God. So how do you respond to this God? How do you respond to the God that is sovereign and merciful? Fear Him. Fear Him. God exercises His sovereignty 
Point one, to show his mercy. Point two, point number three, so fear him. So fear him. Jonah says something interesting in his interrogation. He actually says there in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Jonah claims to fear God, but his actions are not lining up with his profession. Right? Listen to how Ed Welch defines the fear of the Lord and see if Jonah's actually being honest here when he says, I fear the Lord. Ed Welch says this, The basic idea behind the fear of the Lord is much broader than our modern understanding of fear. While the holiness of God will leave many knees knocking when Jesus comes again, a mature fear of the Lord is more akin to awe, devotion, and worship. It is a response that says your glory is irresistible. In your presence, nothing else matters. You are all that I desire. Furthermore, it is an active response. It does something. It is not simply passive devotion. It follows Christ in obedience. It searches out his will and is eager to do it. Jonah is claiming to have that sort of fear of the Lord, but he's falling short. Fear of the Lord is a reverent submission that leads to a trust and worship of God. True fear of God is is your heart being moved towards him when you see his glory as he's revealed himself in, the, in the, the word, he reveals himself in the gospel of Christ. True fear of the Lord is not a trembling terror. It's knowing that Christ has removed that sting so that I can move towards this, this God who I should stand in awe of. Right? Nehemiah 1.11 Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant's who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear. It's a, if I can just be honest, for, for those who spurn Christ, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God, the Bible says. But for those who turn and come to Christ, they see that warning as, as an opportunity to turn and come to Him. For those that, that, that trembling Terror is removed, and all we have is, is the acceptance and love of God in Christ Jesus because we're, we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. So we can delight to fear. Right? Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Now, we did a whole Bible hour on fear of the Lord, and I used sort of a, a, a silly example to try to illustrate it. So I'll just do this quickly. But my favorite part of, you know, Custer's 4th of July parade is the when the bomber flies over, right? And they, they fly low, and it's loud, and it, it's shaking in your chest, and my kids are crying. It's great. Right? But, but when you feel that in your chest and you feel the power of this thing that's, that's flying over you and you realize, man, this, this could destroy me like that. This could destroy me like that. I felt this sense of fear, but for me, I'm, I'm an American citizen. I don't feel this fear of danger, right? Because I realize that that thing has been designed to actually protect me. Right? So I'm trembling at the power and the authority of this machine, but I knew it was directed for my safety. It's directed for my good, not for my destruction. I'm actually drawn towards that. I love that. 
I get excited about that, even though that thing could kill me in a second. And that's a the silly way to illustrate the fear of the Lord. It's a delight in Him because of who He is and its awareness of His power and authority and His justice and His wrath and knowing that He, he directed all that at Jesus for my sake. He poured out his wrath on Christ so that I don't have to bear it. And now I don't, I don't have to fear in the sense of trembling, but I fear him in reverent worship. And that, that gospel, it moves my heart to want to love and please God. So Jonah isn't walking in the fear of the Lord. He's not drawn to obedience here. You can't fear God and run at the same time. But remember... We said the sailors kind of serve as like a, a visual rebuke of Jonah and the way that they contrast one another. They're actually more sensitive to God's power and work than the prophet himself. And we see it as their fear turns to, from really just sheer terror to worship. So we'll move a little quickly through this. But in verse 5, it says they were afraid. Storm comes, big storm, they're scared. They know that their lives are in danger. They try to respond appropriately. Right, the next time their fear is mentioned, it's in verse 10. Their fear is elevated. In the Hebrew, it says they feared a great fear. Right, That repetition lets you know it's, it's big-time big fear here. They're terrified. Right, this is right after Jonah had told them, the Lord is creator of the sea and the dry land, and they're not just afraid like they were in verse 5. They fear a great fear. They're exceedingly terrified in verse 10. The third mention of their fear is even more nuanced. Afraid in verse 5, feared a great fear in light of the fact that Jonah serves Yahweh and is running from Yahweh and he's the creator. Right, The storm was scary enough, but this mention of Yahweh... The third mention of their fear is in verse 16. It says, again in Hebrew, they feared a great fear exceedingly, the Lord. Right? They, they, they feared greatly the Lord. There's even more nuance here. They are the ones in verse 14 who are actually appealing to God for mercy. They're offering sacrifices, making vows to the Lord because they fear God. They fear Yahweh, and they're responding the way one ought to respond when they fear the Lord. Standing in reverent submission and offering sacrifices and vows and, and calling upon His name. So then how do these themes work together? God's sovereignty, mercy, fear of the Lord. We might say the main point of our passage this way, fear God because He exercises His sovereign authority to show mercy. He's both sovereign and merciful. Fear God, rejoice with trembling, because the one who is sovereign over all creation, the one who directs your every step, the one who uh, sustains your every breath is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see in Jonah that God intervenes so that these sailors, and so that Jonah do not have to bear the full weight of the consequences of their sin. And this points us forward to the work of Jesus. 
who took on flesh, becoming a man in order that he might be the only righteous substitute on our behalf and bear the consequences of sin in his own body. You want to talk about severe mercy. We see the severity of mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ where the wrath of God is poured out on him so that we might receive mercy. It's supremely displayed in Jesus when he bore our sins in his body. And Isaiah 55, 7 says this about the Lord. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And turn to our God and he will freely pardon. The sacrifice of Jesus was God's foreordained plan from the beginning. He brought it about. He planned it. He orchestrated it. He chose to display His glory on the cross of Christ. He exercised His sovereign authority to show mercy. So fear Him. Fear Him. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank You for Your mercy. You're so undeserving. We so often rebel and run from your clear will that's revealed to us. In Scripture, it's the law of the Lord is written on our hearts. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for Christ who bore the wrath on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.